We're in the middle of a, an expository study through the book of Romans. We are in our eighth week, and uh, we're on the 26th verse or 27th verse of uh, the first chapter. We've, we've not covered just a ton of ground. Uh, 26 and 27 is what we'll cover this morning. But we're, we're moving slowly and methodically through the book of Romans. I anticipate that we'll be here for a year or so. I don't know for sure, but at the rate we're going, and there are 16 chapters, and you can do the math. Amen. We're going to be here a while. That's okay. Amen. I have a, an ambition to teach and preach my way through the entire New Testament. And we have covered a lot of that ground, but we're nowhere near finished with that. And if it's a lifetime endeavor, then it's a lifetime endeavor. I think it's a worthy endeavor. Amen? And so, looking at the first chapter of the book of Romans, having introduced, uh, coming in about the 16th, 17th verse, having introduced the idea of the revelation of the wrath of God. First, Paul talked about the revelation of the righteousness of God. Then he turned to the revelation of the wrath of God. And then he gave reasons for the wrath of God. And now we're in a segment of Romans where he deals with the results of the wrath of God. We, we saw that the wrath of God was revealed. We saw why the wrath of God was revealed. Now we're seeing the progressive uh, result of the wrath of God. We've been observing for several weeks now through Paul's eyes the progression of sin. First, men suppressed the truth of the knowledge of God. They denied God. They denied uh, the knowledge of God. And as a result, they began to act and live as if there was no God. And when they did that, Paul told us their foolish hearts became darkened. Because they rejected God, because they denied God, it became a spiritual affliction on humanity, and in particularly in their heart, they were immersed in darkness. Because they turned their back on the light of the truth of God, they were relegated to living in darkness. And so the next step in that progression into that darkness was the step into idolatry. And we talked about that, how that man chose to worship the creation over the creator. And he, he chose to make idols to be his gods. And the problem with idols is idols can't hear. They have eyes that cannot see. They have ears that cannot hear. Hands that cannot touch. They don't have any ability to impart a moral code for life. And so ultimately, the worship of idols leads to a self-made, man-made moral code for life. It re leads to man's obsession with himself. A mentality prevails that says, I'll do whatever seems right to me. I'll act however feels good to me because the gods that I've chosen to worship can't dictate to me what is right or what is good. So it becomes a self-centered type of morality. I'll do what I perceive as right. And at that stage, man becomes his own moral judge. He becomes his own moral standard of righteous conduct and good living. And he decides what is right. And the next step in that progression then is the breakdown into sexual immorality. That's where we were last week. First, in the name of idol worship, men begin to promote and, and practice illicit sexual encounters. But what was born in the temples of false gods doesn't stay there. 
Eventually, it finds its way into the fabric of society, and all restraint in regard to human sexuality is stripped away. The Bible says, Paul says, in the last verse we covered last week, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They traded the truth of God for the supreme lie that something or someone could replace God that somehow they could find something that would satisfy. You've got a God-sized hole in your heart. You've got a place inside of you that will only be satisfied by the presence of God. Nothing else in this life will ever satisfy that longing in your soul that desires God. And so they determined, they, they, they bought into a lie, and the lie is that something else can fill that hope. The lie is that something else can satisfy your soul. Men have tried a lot of things. They've tried alcohol. They've tried drugs. They've tried the different carnal pursuits of the flesh. Talk about hunting. I know men who put hunting in that place of being an idol in their lives. Put their family aside. Put their job aside. Put everything aside. It doesn't satisfy. It never has. It never will. That little note about hunting wives, you can send me checks in a little while. Amen. Just free one there for all the men. It has never satisfied anything in our lives that desire to be known by God, to worship God, to walk with God. The things that we bring in to try to take place of God are what Paul called a lie. And so he said they worship the creature more than the creator. That brings us to the next step in this downward progression. From sexual immorality, sin leads man to sexual perversion. Now, I stressed last week we talked about sex, and I said it's kind of uncomfortable, but it's going to get worse. This is where it gets worse. So buckle your seatbelt, and here we go. Amen? Sin leads man from those natural acts of sexual immorality into the realm of the unnatural. The passage we looked at last week, I was explicit. We're talking about natural acts of sexual immorality. But this morning, the passage we're going to look at explicitly describes homosexual behavior for both women and men. And just as clearly as it identifies the behavior, you can read the text, we'll read it together in just a minute, but just as clearly as it identifies the behavior, it also categorizes that behavior as sin. It does not indicate that this is a genetic trait or that this is something that is natural for some people. The argument in science and the argument in our society as well, this is some people are born this way. The, the argument that Paul makes in our text this morning runs counter to that entire thought process. Paul labels it as unnatural, as vile, and as shameful. That's the way he regards homosexual behavior. In Paul's words, this goes against Nature. This isn't a genetic thing. This isn't something you're born into. Nature itself bears witness that homosexuality is sinful. In nature, the sex drive exists for the sake of reproduction. In human relationship, it helps unite a husband and a wife together in a lifelong marriage. 
That, in turn, creates the family unit and fulfills God's original purpose for woman in that she is a helpmate to the man. Amen. Man and woman together become the the patriarchs of a familial unit that they lead into worship of God. Amen. Homosexuality produces none of those things. From the biblical viewpoint, from Paul's viewpoint, from the viewpoint of Scripture, It is unnatural and it is wrong. Now let me clarify before we get into that text. That does not mean that an individual who's been involved in that type of lifestyle is more evil than some other kind of sinner. It does not mean that they cannot be saved by the grace of God. Quite the contrary. We're talking about sin and we're talking about sinful behaviors. And all of the sin that's mentioned in this chapter condemns a soul to death. All of the sin that's mentioned in this chapter brings a soul under the wrath of God. But every sin that is mentioned here can be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is not a sin that is outside of the mercy and the grace of God. Now, we're living in a time in American culture where it is socially taboo to speak against this kind of behavior and to spell it out and to call homosexuality a sin. However, our objective here this morning is to preach and teach the book of Romans the way Paul wrote it, and we're not going to tiptoe around the subject. Amen. We're going to call it just like the Bible calls it because the Word of God trumps culture. The Word of God trumps political correctness. If it comes right down to it, the word of God trumps man-made laws. Amen. This is God's word, so we're going to tell it just like the Bible says it. It's not a message of judgment. It's not a message of condemnation. It's a message about sin. But ultimately, it's a message that there is a Savior who saves men and women from sin. There's still freedom at the cross. Do you believe that? So getting into the text, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 says... For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Let's take it apart phrase by phrase. It says, For this cause... God gave them up. This is the second week in a row that our, our, our lesson from the book of Romans has started with that kind of a statement. God gave them up. We said last week that it represents an escalation. It is the next downward step. Man rejected God. Man tried to replace God with idols, the exalted idols, and God gave them up to sexual immorality. Now that that arena of depravity has run its course in their lives and it has not satisfied their desire because they've done all of that and they're still not satisfied because they've done all that and they're still looking for ways to replace God in their lives because they've gone that far and they still haven't recognized they need God and that's the only thing that will satisfy them, then God gives them up again. And this time he gives them up to sexual perversion. When man discards moral law, when man discards the truth of who God is and what God requires of him, eventually 
when man becomes his own judge of right and wrong, eventually nothing is wrong. Man can rationalize in himself that anything is good. You've seen it in the news. People rationalize murder. They kill people and then stand on in, in judgment and in courtrooms and argue that it was justified. I'm not talking about an accident. I'm not talking about self-defense. I'm talking about cold-blooded murder. Man can make anything seem justified to himself. So when man becomes his own standard of morality, when man becomes his own standard of righteousness, then eventually gets to the place where nothing is wrong, where everything is okay, where everything is right. So when man has indulged his natural sinful lust without restraint, eventually he explores the unnatural lust that, that to try to satisfy that place in him that is not satisfied by his pursuits of these carnal things. So widespread sexual immorality in a society always leads to homosexuality because widespread homosexual immorality will widespread sexual immorality I get it right will never satisfy the longing of the soul and as man desires as man craves as man reaches for something to satisfy that inner need eventually he turns from the natural to the unnatural that's the next downward step in this progression into sin to give them up, God said he gave them up. We said this last week. That actually means to hand them over, to put them under the power of something else. God puts them under the power of sin. He gives them up to the control of the very thing that they desired, the very thing that they preferred over God. They chose this over God, and so he gives them to it. What, what Paul's saying, and again, this, this is kind of a repetition of some of what we said last week, but Paul, God, Paul's saying God will not violate man's will. Man chose this over God. Man put this ahead of God, and God will not force man to do something that he doesn't want to do. When men refuse to worship God and instead worship the creature over the creator, then he releases them to sin. He gives them the freedom that they desire. But make no mistake about it, it's not a freedom uh, that, that leads them to a good place. It's a freedom into bondage. It's a freedom that allows them, that removes the inhibition, that removes the barrier to sin, and allows them the freedom to pursue the bondage that results from sin. And so man turns away from God and God turns man over to his sin. And this is what he turned them over to. In this, this passage, Paul says, unto vile affections. The word affection is from a Greek word meaning a passion or an affection. The word vile is from a Greek word that means dishonor, humiliation, or disgrace. In order to understand what Paul's saying, you've got to get... The concept in Greek thought, to honor someone means that you evaluate their worth. You evaluate their value and you give them the respect that that value dictates. You give them the honor that their worth deserves. To dishonor someone then means that you either in, unintentionally, by mistake, undervalue them and by doing so do not give them 
the respect that they deserve or that you recognize that they deserve respect, but you determine that you're not going to give it to them even though you know they deserve it. Either way, you don't render to them the honor that was due them based on their value, based on their worth. That's dishonor. So the way Paul characterizes homosexual behavior is vile affections, or if I could put it more in the the context, passions of dishonor. This tells us something important. The passion that controls this kind of behavior are passions that have caused men and women to put an incorrect value, an incorrect estimate of their own dignity and purity on their own bodies. They have undervalued themselves. They have not recognized the value of their own body. And because they've chosen to ignore the value of their body, they use it in a way that dishonors it. That's what he's saying. They're passions of dishonor. At the heart of homosexuality, at the heart of sexual perversion, lies the sad truth that men and women have failed to see the value of their own bodies. They failed to see the value of themselves. And so they engage in behavior that dishonors themselves. Does that make sense? God made you. You are his creation. And there is value in who and what you are. But this kind of behavior denies the purpose for which God made you and denies the very plan of God for your life. And it is dishonorable because in order to engage in this kind of behavior, you've got to put yourself on a lower valuation of yourself than what God has placed you in. You've got to see yourself as worth less than what God sees you as being worth. You've got to value yourself below the valuation that God has placed on you. You've got to think of yourself lower than God thinks of you. That's a pretty heavy thing. But that's what causes this kind of behavior. Let me point something else out before we move on with the verse. We said at the beginning that man was made to worship God. Man was made, created as a religious being. We are religious. Like it or not, even the atheist worships science, worships logic and knowledge. All of us worship something. We were made for that purpose. The truth is abundantly evident in the history of humanity. Even when man rejects God, he worships something. That's what we were made for. But we weren't made just to worship something. We were made to worship God. Man, humanity in general, was made for God. We were made to worship God. There was something that Solomon said, God put a little piece of eternity in our hearts. There's something inside of us that knows what it is to be in fellowship with, to be in relationship with, to have a a, a bond with the creator, God. 
And it longs for that. And it desires that. And it strives for that. And that's the only thing that fulfills the purpose of man. Man was made to be in fellowship with God. But sin perverts that. The first step in the downward progression that we're looking at was the rejection of God. Man turned his back on God. Man denied the knowledge of God. Man who was made to worship God instead decided he would worship something else. Man who was made to walk with God, to know God, utilized that innate need to worship but wasted it on powerless idols that couldn't satisfy him. In a spiritual sense, sin has perverted the relationship between God and man. Man has turned away from that which he was made for and has sought to satisfy that inner need for worship through other avenues for which he was not made. Does that make sense? Sin perverted the act of worship. That's what sin does. Now, without being too graphic, let me say that man and woman were made for each other. And after sin perverted in a spiritual sense the reason why we were made, the natural progression of sin was to pervert in a physical sense the reason why we were made. Man was made to worship God. And the man and the woman were made for each other. When man dishonored the very purpose for which he was made spiritually by worshiping lesser things, he devalued his worship. He undervalued his praise. He dishonored himself spiritually. And the natural progression was that he would come to the place that he would dishonor himself physically, that he would undervalue himself physically, that he would engage in that which was not profitable to himself, neglecting the purpose for which men and women were made. They refused to see the value in themselves, and instead they pursued that for which they were not made. So what we see here is that the physical follows after the spiritual. What happened way back several weeks ago in the first lesson, we talked about rejecting God. What we're seeing now is just the physical manifestation of what took place spiritually there. Man turned away from that which he was made for and pursued that which he was not made for, trying to satisfy that which he was made for. That's exactly what's happening now in, in this, this discussion of homosexuality. Men have left their natural use. Women have left their natural use, and they pursued something outside of that which was natural and that which was made for them, trying to satisfy a desire that that will never satisfy. Does that make sense? So sin is driving man further and further away from God and step by step is perverting the purpose for which he is made. Let's get into it. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So Paul makes a key point here and he makes it in regards to homosexual behavior. It's a point I made earlier in the lesson and we kind of solidify it here now. But in order to get the real gist of it, you've got to understand how the original language reads because he makes a subtle but important change in the language here that doesn't show up in the English translation. Paul, it moves away from the words men and women as you see them in the English. 
and moves to the designations male and female. And he does that for a purpose. Instead of using the word men and women, which generally refer to humans, he uses the word male and female, which refer to gender distinction. And he does that because he's setting up the point. He's not just talking about men and women. He's about to talk about that which is natural. Males and females expands outside of the human race. And if we look at nature, we see in nature that homosexual behavior is unnatural. Males and males don't go together. Males and females were made for each other. So this is a, what he, the point that Paul's making here at the end of this verse and the beginning of the next verse where he uses the word female instead of the word woman and he uses the word male in the next verse instead of the word men is he's making the point that this kind of perversion is uniquely human. It, it came out of the mind of man. It has no counterpart in nature. You don't find it anywhere else. God made males and he made females throughout the entire system of biology. And in every, every species of biology, males and females couple together for the purpose of reproduction only in humanity, only where sin has perverted and twisted the mind, only there. Do you see this kind of perverted union between man and man or woman and woman? Male and male and female and female. It doesn't happen anywhere else. That's the point Paul's making. This isn't a genetic trait. This isn't a something that's inbred. This is something that man chooses. Paul says the female changed their natural use into that which is against nature. By using the word female, he's calling on the witness of nature, not just women, but all females in all of nature have a natural use for their bodies. That's speaking of a reproductive use. And they deny it. That natural use has perverted has been perverted by sin only in the human race. That's about as graphic as I'm going to get. Moving on, it says, And likewise also, the men leaving the natural use of the women. Again, the word here is male. And again, the argument here is taken from nature. Males leave the natural use of their body. There's a natural use for a man, just like there was a natural use for a woman. And they've, they've denied that. they perverted that. And then he goes on and says, Burn in their lust one toward another. The Greek word for burn literally means to burn out or to be totally consumed. It's a very intense term that describes the drive or intensity of desire that compels men and women into these unnatural unions. It was an all-out effort. It was everything bought in 
the whole route to satisfy this depraved nature inside of them. Sin has perverted. Sin has twisted their mind. Sin has twisted their heart. But sin has not satisfied them. And so they keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And that's why the progression continues. Each step of the way, we keep going deeper and deeper into darkness, deeper and deeper into sin. And sin doesn't satisfy him. Sin doesn't bring about that that sense of fulfillment that he's looking for. So in his depraved state, he burns in his lust to try to find something to satisfy him. It is that intensity that is like a raging fire that consumes everything. Man throws out all reservation. Listen, to go against nature, to go against that which is just makes good, plain, common sense. Man has to throw out Everything, all reservation aside. And in a burning desire, he pursues that dishonorable passion in a misguided effort to satisfy the longing of his soul. That's what the Bible says about homosexuality. Men with men working that which is unseemly. The Greek word for unseemly refers to immodesty, nakedness, or shamefulness. What they're doing, Paul says, is shameful. It doesn't get any more explicit. It doesn't get any more plain. And receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Now, this last portion, and this is where we'll conclude, but this last portion, it, it is probably the most frightening portion of all that we've read today. Because in a simple sense, recompense means a penalty. But it conveys a deeper meaning. It means a penalty that is equal to the offense. The meaning of equal to the offense is underscored by the last phrase in the verse which says which is meat. That word meat implies that which is necessary or that which is required by the law. In other words, if somebody murders somebody, if a man commits murder, we don't make him dig ditches for 30 days and set him free. The penalty for murder in this society, we, we practice capital punishment. The penalty for murder is death. And death is the sentence that has been deemed equal to the crime. It's what's necessary under law. And so the penalty that the law demands is death. This is what the language of this verse conveys. There's a penalty for this kind of behavior that's equal to the offense of this kind of behavior. It's a penalty that is required, that is demanded by the morality of God, by the law of God, and they're going to receive that penalty. They're going to receive that recompense of their error which was required or which was meet. There's, there's judgment in this. Now, we said before, what we've been seeing unfold is God allowing sin to be the judgment for sin. Because sin keeps taking man further and further and further away from God and keeps emphasizing the fact that man needs God. But now we find recompense. Now we find judgment here. This kind of behavior has with it a penalty that is equal to the offense. And the really sad part is Paul doesn't really clarify for us what that penalty is. Doesn't really tell us 
doesn't really spell out only that there is a penalty for this type of behavior that's equal to the offense. That's a serious thing, my friend. But here's the good news. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 that practicing homosexuals along with a whole lot of other bad people that you'll read about if you go back and read that text will not enter into the kingdom of God. They're not a part of the family of God. They will not enter into heaven. But he went on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, 11, such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Make no mistake about it. According to Paul, practicing homosexuality will keep you out of heaven. It'll keep you out of the kingdom of God. But it will not keep you away from the mercy of God. It will not keep you away from the grace of God. A practicing homosexual can't enter heaven, but a former homosexual can. That's the message of Scripture. When any sinner repents, regardless of the nature of their sin, when any sinner repents and is washed in the blood of the Lamb in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with the power of the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, then they're numbered among the people of God. This is sin, but it's not a sin that can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. Would you stand with me? I know it's a different kind of lesson this morning. That's okay. We're just following the text. Very, very, very applicable to the day and age in which we live. Paul's writing to the Romans. Rome was a society that didn't just embrace homosexuality. It championed homosexuality. 14 out of the first 15 emperors of Rome practiced homosexuality. The emperors. It was prevalent in the society. They didn't just allow it, they promoted it. And the people to whom Paul is writing are people who will have seen that at every corner. They will have seen it practiced. They will have seen it promoted. They will have seen society embrace it. They will be viewed as outsiders because they don't embrace it. That's not that different from the culture that we live in today. It's not that different from the world that we're a part of today. And so it's a very, very pointed lesson that has much to do with the age that we live in. And to sum it up, the entire character of mankind is determined by what he does with God. The entire nature of a society is determined by how they handle what they do with God. Sin doesn't just take men captive. Sin doesn't just exert its rule and reign over your life. It doesn't hold you hostage against your will. Sin's reign in the life of man is determined by man's disposition towards God. Sin can't walk in and take you captive and hold you hostage and make you do anything. It's all dependent on how you handle God 
in your life? What do you do with God? If man honors God, if man worships God, if man walks with God, if man has that desire to know God and seeks God, then sin has no power over him. If man turns his life to God in repentance and in baptism and is filled with the Holy Ghost, sin doesn't have any authority over him. But when man rejects God, when he rejects God's rule and authority in his life, then he submits himself to sin. Nowhere in this passage, and we'll finish chapter 1 next week, but nowhere in the whole of this passage is man represented as the victim or as having been taken captive against his will. In every step along this progressive trail of sin, man is active, man is in charge. These are things that come from the mind of man. These are, these are offenses that my, man comes up with on his own, comes out of his own mind. It's conceived there. Before, it ever, before any of this was ever acted out in the flesh, it was first conceived in the mind. Man thought it, and then man did it. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, and I'm wrapping up with this. Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you're under the sound of my voice this morning, you, you know there's a sin problem in your life, and you want to overcome that. Can I tell you that it begins in your mind? It begins in your thought process. Let that same mind, which was in Christ Jesus, be in you. It begins when you let your mind become subject to the grace of God, to the power of God. It begins when you bow your knee and you put your heart on an altar and you say, Lord, I surrender myself. All that I am, the way I think has to change. The way I approach life has to change. My philosophy about life has to change. Everything about me has to become subject to Jesus Christ. When you make that step, sin no longer has any authority over you. It no longer has the power to control you. If you let that same mind which is in Christ reign.